All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of the Mo News Podcast. Very excited today to be bringing you a conversation with one of my favorite guests, Sharon McMahon. You might know her from her podcast, Here's Where It Gets Interesting, or you might know her as Sharon Says So. She actually has more than a million followers on Instagram where she breaks down uh, government history uh, in really interesting, compelling ways. This week, I actually had two conversations with her on Tuesday and Wednesday over on Instagram Live, where we took uh, many viewer questions about two key cases before the Supreme Court this week. Uh, And I'm going to bring you a portion of our conversation on each of those cases. Uh, The first one is a case called 303 Creative. The court heard it on Monday, and it effectively presents a, a debate over free speech versus LGBTQ rights. It's a discrimination dispute uh, where a Colorado web designer wants to be able to design wedding websites but refuse to do wedding websites for same-sex couples. It goes against the state of Colorado's anti-discrimination law, and the court heard arguments on it this week. So Sharon and I will break that down uh, in the first portion of the podcast, and then we get into one of the most compelling cases the court will hear this term. This one is called Moore v. Harper. I've talked about it a bit on the Daily Podcast. Uh, This comes out of North Carolina, and Republican legislators there are asking the Supreme Court to effectively grant them unrestricted power to set rules for voting and elections. They're trying to argue that in the Constitution, state legislatures should have unchecked power when it comes to uh, all rules when it comes to voting, uh, and in particular, drawing voting districts. So that case was heard before the Supreme Court on Wednesday, December 7th. Sharon and I discussed the arguments before the court there. Reminder, Sharon is a, a former high school government teacher and law teacher who expanded on her decades of expertise with her Instagram account, Sharon Says So. She took it to the uh, podcast world. She has a book club. And so we'll often check in several times a year uh, around matters of government and the court over on Instagram and wanted to make sure you could also listen to a bit of our conversation. A reminder before we get started here to subscribe or follow the Mo News podcast to ensure you don't miss a single episode just like today's. And if you can, review the show. Uh, Every review helps continue to grow this podcast. With that, I bring you some of my conversation with Sharon McMahon uh, this week over on Instagram Live in regards to the Supreme Court. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. It was so great to see you in person in New York last month. I know. 
know, I know. Everybody was so excited to see to see a picture of us together in real life. And and I appreciate you leaning down because everyone's like, Sharon says she's tall. <laughs> I didn't think you were that tall. I'm like, I'm not that tall. No, she is. She definitely is. It's that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> uh, but congrats, later congrats again on your award. You're very, very deserved award. Before we begin individual cases, last uh, last year was a huge year for the court. Um, it was the first six three conservative year. Uh, we have another one of those this cycle. They ruled on a whole number of cases, including abortion, of course. Um, we're about two months into this session, this year's session. Uh, as you've been observing it, uh, what are your observations so far? And this, of course, is the first year for Ketanji Brown-Jackson on the court. So just kind of as we get into the cycle, what, what, what has the court been like so far for the first two months? I think you're seeing sort of an emboldened Supreme Court. They've been taking very high-profile cases, cases that they feel confident that they can win majorities on, um, cases that perhaps they have been delaying deciding on for a while because they did not have clear-cut majorities on cases. And the Supreme Court does not like to be a vague. They don't like to be uh, innocuous. People don't like to be like, well, what does that mean? They want to uh, they want to issue clear cut rulings that have demonstrable impacts on something that people can then sort of take to the bank. And so now um, that they have these uh, very clear cut six three majority, they are feeling empowered to take on the kinds of cases that they can deliver clear direction on what's happening. Someone asked Sharon. Uh, how do they make their decisions? How many cases are they deciding on every cycle? And how, how are they deciding to take on the cases that we'll be talking about today? Mm. So they need four people to decide to take a case. And so what it, what it really boils down to is one judge having a personal interest in something and then convincing other people on the court that believe similarly to them or hold a similar interest to agree to hear a case. So they get around roughly 7,000 requests a year for cases, and they decide to take roughly 100, 110 of them. And they won't issue full opinions on every single one of them, but they're writing opinions on perhaps 80 or 90 different cases, depending on the election cycle, or I'm sorry, depending on the um, the court cycle. So that's, you know, they, they literally, it has happened in the past that a justice has said to one of their clerks, go through all of the cases, find me anything related to X, we'll make a stack of them, and then we'll decide which one will make the best case. That happened in Miranda v. Arizona, for example. When you say X, you mean specific uh, amendment of the Constitution, a specific issue? Uh, are there certain pet issues that certain justices have? Yes, a specific topic. Um, and you saw in the 1960s a huge uptick in interest in topics related to civil rights. Um, and I have been observing over the last couple of years that the court has been increasingly interested in things like qualified immunity. They have continued to take new cases about qualified immunity. Where are the boundaries of um, immunity when from prosecution or from lawsuit when you are acting in your official capacity in a job? So uh, the case uh, they heard on Monday, we'll, we'll start there, was a big case out of Colorado. Uh, we discussed it a bit on um, the podcast and on this Instagram page. I know you've been discussing it. It has to do with a website designer named Lori Smith. She has aspirations to at some point design wedding websites, though to my knowledge, she has not done a wedding website yet, nor received any requests to do any same-sex marriage websites. Um, but she does not want her offer her services to same-sex couples. That's right. 
How did this case get to the court? Um, why did it get to the court? And then we'll discuss the arguments. Mm. So she is being represented by the same group that represented the cake baker in Masterpiece Cake Shop a couple of years ago. So this was absolutely brought up as a test case for the court. Um, they've been open about that. That's not a that's not conjecture. Um, and she, I've been asked this question a number of times. People want to know, I thought somebody had to be harmed. I thought there needed to be a same-sex couple who has been denied service. How can she just go straight to the court and say, hey, get rid of this law? And it, the difference is, it's because she is alleging that her rights are being violated. And so that is what she is trying to establish. That's the harm is she's alleging that her First Amendment rights are being violated. So this is a topic of interest. Religious liberty and freedom of speech are, are always topics of interest in the court, but they are increasingly, you're going to see more religious liberty and more free speech cases coming down the pike. So they heard this Baker case a couple of years ago, incidentally, also out of Colorado. They didn't rule on the underlying um Legality, they, they basically found that the baker was mistreated by previous courts and, and was harmed. So in this case, it came back up to the court. Uh, she wants this Colorado law. Explain the Colorado law, uh, how unique it is versus other states. Mm. So Colorado has anti-discrimination laws. The United States government has federal anti-discrimination laws, and states can choose to add to anti-discrimination laws if they want to. You know, there are different classes of protected um, groups, and they can be things like you are free from, you're supposed to be free from discrimination based on things like race, gender, pregnancy status, uh, age over 40, things along those lines. But states can add to that if they want to, and some states do. So one of the things that Colorado has added to its anti-discrimination sort of roster um, is announcing an intent to discriminate, that you are not allowed to announce an intent. Uh, and so one of the issues here, it's not that uh, the website designer has already experienced uh, the wrong uh, in terms of like, uh, she tried to make a site and then was prosecuted. It's that she wants to announce her intent on her website via like a blog post to only work with, with, um, with opposite gender couples. And she believes that for religious purposes. Um, and she is saying that by being prohibited from making that kind of a blog post on her website, that she is having her First Amendment free speech rights violated. Um, they are not hearing any religious liberty aspect of this case. They agreed to only hear the free speech portion of this case. So that's, that is the sort of the crux, the foundation of her argument that she wants to put up a post and Colorado's anti-discrimination laws prohibit the announcing of the intent to discriminate. The announcing of the intent. So the announcing on my website that I will only be doing websites for opposite gender couples. That's how this thing made its way all the way to the highest court in the land. She's suing the state of Colorado, saying right. that Colorado's law, anti-discrimination law, violates her First Amendment rights. That's what she's saying. How much is she spending to sue? She's being represented by an outside organization, right? I, I'm certainly not privy to any personal financial arrangement, arrangements, but presumably she is not spending personal money to uh, sue in this case. And, and this happens... Uh, this happens once in a while, right? These cases that are taken on by third-party organizations. 
Yes, it happens frequently. It's actually very common because of how very, very expensive it is to bring a suit all the way to the Supreme Court. You have to go through multiple layers of lower courts first. You have to fight an entire state government's uh, legal department. It's not an easy, you know, just like file some paperwork, boom, you're heard at the Supreme Court. Just to even get to that point requires a tremendous amount of time, expertise, and funds. Let's start with the, the kind of foundation of the argument. Let's start with, with her side. Uh, what was the case that her attorneys made um, and, and why they argue that they believe she does have the right to announce or, or why they believe this Colorado law is unconstitutional? Mm. So the one of the, the big pieces of her argument is that it is unconstitutional to compel an individual to use certain kinds of speech. So if I were to extrapolate this into a, its logical extension, it would be, she believes it is like the government saying to you, Moshe, um, that you, um, that you absolutely believe Taylor Swift is the greatest artist of all time. And it, it, worshiping Taylor Swift is your religion. Okay. Like that in her mind, uh, that is what she's saying that the government no, is no forcing- arguments from me on that one. <laughs> That the government is forcing her um, to say things that she doesn't want to say. So it's this, the argument is compelled speech, compelled speech. So she is saying that um, when she is being forced to potentially make a wedding website for a same-sex couple, that the government is compelling her to support that viewpoint. It's compelling her to say things that are counter to her own personally held religious beliefs. So compelled speech, people have to, that's like one of the big things that people should kind of file away in their minds is compelled speech. But would this apply if she says, I don't want to make websites for someone who is black or someone who is Muslim, would it be the same? Could she make the same argument or is there something unique about same-sex couples here. Mm. So that's a great question. And that is absolutely one of the uh, linchpins of the arguments. So Colorado, in response to her lawsuit, is saying, listen, if we let her discriminate against LGBTQ couples, then we have to let her discriminate against Black couples. We have to let her discriminate against Muslim couples. We have to host or we have to allow for a host of different types of bigotry. That's what Colorado is saying. Um, and one of the things that you heard the justices say yesterday in their oral arguments, they were sort of discussing uh, what you could you could absolutely hear if you are a seasoned court watcher. You can absolutely hear um, them sort of feeling out how are we going to approach this decision. And one of the arguments that Samuel Alito posed was whether or not choosing not to serve LGBTQ couples is the same as choosing not to serve couples uh, who are uh, Black or couples who are a different religion. Uh, and so I think that potentially might be one of the issues that the Supreme Court chooses to tease out, whether um, LGBTQ couples have the same exact legal standing as a couple who is uh, of a certain racial group. What are the official predicted classes and does does your um, uh, sexual preference, is that a predicted class right now in America? Mm, it is. At, at the federal level, it is. So your sexual orientation is one. Your gender identity is another. Your actual biological, uh, your, your sex, pregnancy, age over 40, um, religion, race, color, ethnicity, disability, 
Those are all uh, federally protected classes. Uh, and again, states can add on to those. I know, for example, like Indiana has added on, like you can't be discriminated against for prior tobacco use. So sometimes there are add-ons, which is what Colorado has done here. But those are the federally protected classes. One thing that struck me, Clarence Thomas said yesterday, you know, this is different. He was, you know, teasing out this or this argument. This is, she's not a hotel. She's not a restaurant refusing service to somebody. She's an artist. She's a website designer. Um, where would they be able to draw a nuance there? Yeah, so that's, you're exactly right that that is another one of the issues that you can see the justices sort of figuring out. How will we write this opinion potentially? And one of the avenues that they are exploring, in addition to what I mentioned with Samuel Alito, another avenue they're exploring is defi defining the differences between an expressive business and a non-expressive business. So an expressive business would be something where the, the person that you hire is putting their own viewpoint into the work. So a photographer, a web designer, um, an artist that you might hire to paint a mural, a you know somebody who writes a song for you, they are expressing a viewpoint with their work. Um, it's possible the justices could make a dividing line between people like that and non-expressive type businesses where somebody makes a product, the product is the same for everybody. I go into a store, I buy a set of flatware. It's the same spoons for everybody. Um, there's not a viewpoint attached to it in the same way that an expressive business might, uh, expressive business might be. Yeah, something important to keep in mind here is the court can write its opinion, I guess, in a, uh, as they refer to it, in a narrow way or in a expansive way, right? Um, among the other things they were talking about yesterday, and this is th these hypotheticals have gotten a lot of attention, uh, somehow they got into a whole conversation about a black mall Santa and whether the mall Santa would have to, could, could reject a child in a KKK outfit. Um, there was another one about a Jewish dating service, one about AshleyMadison.com. Uh, Sharon, explain why they go through these scenarios and why, I mean, to the outside observer, they sound a bit ridiculous, but what are they trying to do here? Yeah. So the court is well known for exploring hypothetical scenarios. This is something that happens uh, in almost every oral argument. They, ex they ask the attorneys at hand uh, about hypothetical scenarios and they will say, so say, for example, X, Y, and Z, what would happen in that case? And what they're doing there is trying to find the logical conclusion of a set of arguments. Um, and it seems uh, in some ways it can seem like, what is the point of that question? You know, like it can seem that way to somebody who is not a, a you know, a seasoned court watcher. Um, but again, it has to do with the logical conclusion of an argument. So um, Katanji Brown-Jackson posed a hypothetical yesterday. She said, so according to what you're saying, she's asking the, uh, asking the plaintiff, the graphic designer this, according to what you're saying, if somebody uh, wants to take Santa pictures at the mall and they say, I only want to take super authentic Santa pictures, you know, like sepia tone, it's a wonderful life. I want them to be super, super authentic. And so because of that, I will only be accepting white clients. Um, and so if you are a client of color, you can go to the black Santa at the other end of the mall. Katanji Brown Jackson was asking under your, under your, um, scenario is that what would be permissible? So then that led to a follow-up question from Samuel Alito, who said, okay, essentially using this uh, black Santa argument at the opposite end of the mall, would that black Santa then be required to have his picture taken with a child in a KKK outfit? 
Um, and the other justices sort of quickly, you know, jumped in and they're like, um, no, KKK outfit is not a protected class. Your outfit is not a protected class. So that's clearly a no. Coming out of the arguments, knowing that A, they decided to take the case, knowing the 6-3 uh, conservative majority on the court, what do we take away from yesterday's arguments in regards to Colorado? I think it's, it was pretty clear after the arguments that they are they came into the oral arguments uh, with a pretty set viewpoint. All of them did. Six of them felt one way, three of them felt another, uh, and they were exploring ways to formulate and craft the opinion. That's that's what it seemed like to me. Um, I think it seemed pretty clear afterwards that they are going to figure out the best argument to make uh, to permit the web designer to not have to engage in compelled speech. But but cut it in a way where it doesn't have these larger implications about rejecting uh, protected classes. Possibly, possibly yes, possibly yes. Um, I think some members of the court would would say. You know, like that's not important to them. And other members would say it is important to them. So in order to gain that majority, I think they will probably land with the it is important uh, in order to get the majority that they need. The second big case this week, um, all about the future of U.S. elections and democracy, a case called Moore v. Harper. You spent your you spent your day listening or part of your day listening to the case. Well, let's start backstory here, Sharon. Redistricting in America. It's been something we've done since the beginning of the Republic. Explain how it works, gerrymandering, and, and how why this particular case has gotten to the court the way it has. Hmm. So gerrymandering, as you mentioned, is very old. It's not new, but we've gotten so much better at it in recent years. Gerrymandering, which is the process of creating political voting boundaries to achieve a political objective. So we're going to create a boundary that elects only people of one, that is very likely to elect people of only one political party. Um, that's what gerrymandering is. And we have gotten excellent at it in the last, uh, the last 10 years. Um, we've always had been good at it to a certain extent with characteristics that were obvious, um, where people were more, um, tended to be more segregated by, uh, ethnicity or religion or race. It used to be, you know, we could sit, we could create gerrymandered districts based on those characteristics. We've gotten even better at it with the ability to purchase information about individuals. So the the process of redistricting happens after the census every 10 years. It just so happens that North Carolina picked up a seat in the House of Representatives in 2020. So more people moved to North Carolina, which gave them the opportunity to add a congressional seat, which means they have to redraw the lines. That's right. That okay. Yes, yes. So this case was previously litigated where the um, legislature of North Carolina drew boundaries that were very, very gerrymandered. It went to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Um, the state was like, this, is, this violates the Constitution of North Carolina. These are too gerrymandered. Uh, and what they ended up doing was appointing a special master, a third party group to create more fair voting districts, which then the Supreme Court of North Carolina accepted and said, OK, these will be the voting districts. Um, and that is the event that has led to this Supreme Court case, Moore versus Harper. Uh, it was the redistricting, the gerrymandering and redistricting and the Supreme the state Supreme Court's involvement in that process that led to 
this case. And, and by the way, it's one of the reasons, as we covered midterms last month, that the House officially has 435 seats, 435 congressional seats, but we were only really watching 40 because about 390 of them have been redistricted, have been gerrymandered in a way that either they're so blue or so red, they're not even competitive anymore. Not even competitive. Um, and that is, you know, democracy actually benefits from competition. Democracy benefits when multiple people present their ideas and the voters are allowed to choose which is the best idea, which is the best person to represent their district. Um, and instead, what's happening is that so many voters are having their choices removed from them via a process that they have very little control over. Um, they are, they're not having their voices heard because of the extraordinary partisan gerrymandering that is happening around the country. Monopoly is not good for government, right? Like monopoly is what people tried to avoid. A monopoly would be like a monarchy. Right. I was going to say, we're, we're seeing it in Iran. We're seeing it in China. We're seeing it in Russia. So we're in the arguments today. The court has nine justices, six conservatives, and three liberals. Um, the way the New York Times reported today, tell me if you agree, is they kind of look at this as a 3-3-3 a, a three, three, three split right now in the way that things were approached. You had three conservatives that were sympathetic to the full argument from the Republicans of North Carolina. You had three conservatives that are sort of searching for a middle ground or asked, posed interesting questions. And then you had the three liberals who are like, get this out of here. Uh, you know, we um, we have major, major concerns about this theory. Yeah, it was it was interesting to hear the different arguments because uh, particularly the liberal justices were absolutely having none of it. They really excoriated the lawyer for the for North Carolina. Um, they told him to his face, "Yeah, that only makes sense if you're rewriting history." And he was like, "I'm I'm not rewriting history." And they're like, "But you are." Next question. You know, like they were very, very pointed in their criticism of him. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you had this sort of uh, trio of uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas who were more receptive to the ideas. I would say the most receptive was Gorsuch, who literally was just saying, isn't it true that X, Y, and Z? And then the lawyer would be like, yeah, that is true. Okay. And isn't it true that that A, B, and C, like he, Gorsuch already had all of his arguments uh, prepared in his own mind uh, and was just asking the lawyer to validate them. Um, Alito uh, moseyed into some hypothetical territories and uh, Thomas actually had a slightly amusing back and forth with one of the lawyers for the opposing side, not the lawyer for North Carolina. Um, where Neil Katyal, who was one of the three attorneys who argued against independent state legislature theory, said, I have been waiting for 30 years to talk to you about this. Like Justice Thomas, I've been waiting for 30 years. Uh, and then Justice Thomas sort of lobbied back a few minutes later, well, I've been waiting for 30 years to ask you this question. So they had a little bit of an amusing back and forth. And I feel like Thomas's allegiance to the idea that ISLT is legitimate was slightly less strong than um, Alito and Gorsuch were. But really this case is going to hinge not on the liberals or the conservatives. The case is going to hinge. It's going to come down to Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. So the ISLT, the independent state legislature theory that was being argued about in court, 
uh, that these three kind of middle ground conservatives in, in this scenario uh, will be weighing. Um, where does this theory originate? Because the argument from North Carolina is like, this is what the founders imagined 200 plus years ago. But I feel like uh, I'm pretty briefed in civics, et cetera. I haven't heard of, like trace the history of this theory uh, where it originates and, and why suddenly we're talking about it right now. Hmm. Well, it's not a new theory, but it is a fringe theory. And it is a theory that the court has rejected multiple times. They referred to throughout their arguments, they referred to this case um, about, you, know, you might have heard them refer to the Smiley case over and over. That was a case from the 1930s. Um, and one of the things at issue in that case was about who, what is a state legislature? When we say that a legislature gets to make all of the decisions about federal elections, what is that? Is it just the people who make laws? Is it just the people in the, you know, like uh, writing up the bills? Uh, and they ultimately decided that no, the legislature also includes the governor who has the ability to veto voting districts. Um, that in this context, not in the broader context, we know the governors are the head of the executive branch, but in this specific context, the actual lawmaking process is not completed until the governor has signed something or vetoed something. So he is part of the the legislative uh, branch, so to speak, in this context. Um, so independent state legislative theory is this idea, or you might hear it called doctrine, is this idea that um, state legislatures are not beholden to their state constitutions when it comes to matters of federal elections. They are beholden to them in all other circumstances, but they do not have to follow any rules laid out by the state constitution in when it comes to federal elections. So, for example, when the North Carolina state constitution says um, elections must be fair and free, People who are proponents of ISLT would say that does not apply when it comes to federal elections. It applies at, at, for state elections, but this, this clause that says elections must be fair and free does not apply to federal elections. And the reason for that is because the Constitution gives power to conduct federal elections to the state legislatures. And so consequently, they're only beholden to the Constitution and not beholden to the state state constitution. That's the idea behind it. It has never been accepted by the Supreme Court. Not one time. Even recent decisions have been like, I don't know what you're talking about, but that is not cool. We're not doing that uh, with the exception of a couple of um, a couple of dissents. But given the makeup of the court now, as it's trended more conservative in recent years, they saw an opportunity to, to have the court hear it again. I mean, certain ideas are tried over time, right? Yep. Like this, this court is perhaps more responsive to, or more open to hearing uh, a claim of ISLT. Uh, and I think it's clear that there are three justices who are, who agree with that reasoning, at least some portions of the reasoning. I don't know that Alito and Thomas are willing to uh, give their full faith and credit towards this doctrine, but they at least want to, it's clear from listening today, they at least want to accept certain portions of it. Um, whereas these three justices that I mentioned that are sort of in the middle, um, 
it was also clear from listening to it that they don't accept it as, uh, you know, just as it's presented on a platter. They disagreed with a lot of what uh, the attorney for North Carolina had to say. And what will be very interesting to figure out is exactly where the opinion comes down, exactly where it lies. I don't think it is likely that the Supreme Court is going to be like approved. We agree with you. Um, but it is possible that they could try to craft some kind of uh, middle way, which is, of course, John Roberts's most favorite thing to do. Yeah, that's actually what Roberts wanted to do with the um, Roe v. Wade decision, right? That's right. Yep. He is always, uh, you know, at, at his at his core, Roberts uh, always wants to be practical. He has he's very practical judge. How will we actually um, implement this? And so we cannot be too extreme because being too extreme is very, very difficult to implement. It creates chaos and division, and we don't want that. We want to have something that is actionable, understandable, et cetera. Um, so he's always, that's always been his MO, and it continues to be that he's always looking for how can I thread this needle uh, with a middle way? So it appears solely based on the argument that it doesn't appear there'll be a rubber stamp for this uh, extreme theory. Um, you have been talking about this case for a long time. Having heard the arguments today, um, are you as concerned, less concerned? Where, where are you? Where were you in the spring? Where were you before this case? Where are you today? I would say that I have moved from alarm to concern. <laughs> That, that's where I am. Uh, I was at alarm and now I'm at concern. I, I won't go so far as to say cautiously optimistic. We're just in the concerned phase. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things that was, that was, uh, it was interesting for me to listen to is how um, Barrett, Kavanaugh and Roberts were trying to sort out these arguments in their mind. And you absolutely saw Amy Coney Barrett draw on her uh, law school, uh, you know, she used to be a law professor, draw on her law professorship. Um, she specifically said in the arguments when the uh, attorney for North Carolina was saying, well, we think it should be X and Y. Um, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds about every single argument that was made. So I made, I'm just summarizing some things, but um, she said, listen, I know from, for, I know firsthand how difficult it is to teach that concept to law students. It will not be an easy thing to tease out what he was, he was proposing that they do. She was saying, I don't think we can do that. Like that is something that even I have a difficult time teaching to law students. I don't think we can make that the standard. Um, so it was interesting to hear her specifically cite her, uh, her previous experience teaching law students. Um, and there were quite a few things where um, both Barrett and Kavanaugh in particular um, sort of rejected some of the ideas that the lawyer for North Carolina proposed. They, they just said, how do you, how can you, um, how can you make that argument? I don't think that's legitimate. Uh, but, and they also said, well, what you're saying now contradicts what you were saying before. So um, it didn't appear as if they were willing to just buy into what he said. They were pretty skeptical of his arguments. What does a middle ground option look like um, between accepting ISLT or completely rejecting and saying the state court was right uh, in, in rejecting your map, Republicans of North Carolina? 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, of course, this remains to be seen. But I think one of the things that the uh, sort of more uh, middle of the road justices were looking to do is figure out what that middle way is. And one thing that sprung up for me as I was listening um, was that they were using this concept of um, this the bar being extraordinary, or they were using in the arguments uh, the stratospheric, or if somebody made it, you know, there were a few kind of amusing uh, words that they used. Well, it's okay. Well, let's assume the bar is at the stratosphere. Um, what that means is that perhaps a middle way would be that a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court could only intervene um, in the most extreme cases where it's very obvious that they have gone far, far afield of where the state laws are written. Um, or also that only the Supreme Court itself could only intervene if the this incredibly high bar has been reached. So um, I think that might be one thing that they try to consider is under what circumstances may a Supreme, state Supreme Court intervene in these kind of scenarios. And so they may be willing to accept some circumstances, but not other circumstances. If they thought that the uh, state Supreme Court overstepped in this case, maybe there would be a way to pull back the levels at which they are allowed to intervene. All right. So that's sort of where things stand. We talked about what a compromise could look like. Ultimately, though, as we talk about it, so gerrymandering, it's going to happen. Um, ISLT looking like that's on the ropes. But ultimately here we could see a compromise that does strengthen the state legislatures, does empower them more. What would that, what would that mean? What translate that? So if that empowers them more or creates less scrutiny from the state courts and they go to federal court, what does that translate to in practical terms for you know, me and you. One of the things it could do um, is that it might require, this is one of the things the justices discussed today as well, um, is that they did not, some of the justices did not like North Carolina's provision that said elections must be fair and free. They were like, that's not specific. That is vague. That is not, uh, that's not going to be um, actionable. It's too vague. And other justices push back against it. And they're like, the entire U.S. Constitution is vague. What does free speech mean? It's all vague. You know, like they they definitely uh, had a back and forth about like, it's a Pandora's box if you think that the, the standard needs to be not vague. Um, but some justices seemed open to this concept of like, yeah, we the the state Supreme Court might be allowed to intervene in an, if, the, if the statutes in the state constitution are not vague. So that might be something that could happen is that states are required to uh, either rewrite their constitutions to have non-vague provisions, or um, they might not be enforceable. That was one of the things they argued about was how enforceable is fair and free election. But is that an enforceable standard? Um, and some justices felt that it absolutely was, and some said said it's not. So when do we find out what they decide? We will hear sometime before June. That's that's what we know. You know, like they'll be done with their uh, decisions uh, by the end of June, sometimes early, early July. Um, but the, other than that, we don't know. It could be any time before then. Um, but it's probably going to be a minimum of a few months. It's it's sort of like, uh, for those of us who used to wait for the season finales of our favorite TV shows back in the pre-streaming era, the Supreme Court's sort of similar, right? They uh, 
they, they keep their big cases for the big end of June season finale. Yes. Yep. That's so true. Like the blockbusters often are, you know, the blockbusters cliffhangers. They want you to keep paying attention. Um, it is true that when they know a case is highly, highly con- uh, consequential, they often will save it t- t- towards the end. So, you know, a lot of people are hypothesizing that it will probably be June before we know the answer. So we're watching that case. Uh, we're watching the case from earlier this week, uh, dubbed 303 Creative. This was the wedding designer, the wedding Sorry, the website designer who at some point aspires to do wedding websites but does not want to do them for same-sex couples, uh, preemptively. Uh, There's also a huge affirmative action case. What other cases – I'd love to hear your thoughts on the um, big affirmative action case. And then other cases that – what other arguments are you going to be watching in the next couple months? Affirmative action, yes, is a big one. After listening to oral arguments, it um, seems like the court has a majority to – um, to strike down a lot of affirmative action uh, laws in the United States. Uh, that's a big one. And then another one is the the case about uh, ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act. The Brackeen case is one that many people, this is going to be highly, highly consequential. This is also a case about race. Um, you know, affirmative action is about uh, how much may you consider race as, as a, a category of admission standards. Um, and the court has, that has varied over time. You can have quotas. No, you can't. You can be one factor. It can't be the only factor. Um, this case, the Burkeen case is the same in that it is about race. And uh, to what extent may you consider the race of individuals uh, when you are doing something like in this case, placing a child in foster care or placing a child up for adoption? It, it pertains to a federal law, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that aimed at uh, combating many of the wrongs that the United States perpetrated on Native American communities, purposely separating uh, people from their children, forcing them to go to boarding schools. Hundreds of children, possibly thousands of children, died under those circumstances. Uh, and so then a series of federal laws were passed to try to keep that from ever happening again. And one of the things that came about as a you know, because of ICWA, was that it became very, very challenging to then place a child who needed to be removed from their family of origin to place them with um, a white family. It had to be a last resort. And in this case, a white family is claiming racial discrimination. They're saying, I am being discriminated against on the basis of race. They want to adopt the sibling of a Native American child that they have already adopted. But because uh, they are not Native, the sibling went to a native family uh, and they they are asserting that their uh, rights are being violated, that they are being discriminated against on the basis of race. And, and the other side, what are they arguing are the ramifications if the ruling goes in the favor of this family? Some of it is about tribal sovereignty. There are some big tribal sovereignty issues uh, surrounding this, and it can dramatically, potentially dramatically impact tribal sovereignty. Um, the concept of separate sovereigns in the United States is a weird one for many Americans to get their you know, head around. It's weird for uh, people who are not from the United States to get their head around of like, you have separate sovereigns, but they're not actually sovereign. They're not actually just like, it, you know, in Europe, when you have like these little micro countries, like you have Luxembourg, San Marino, et cetera, they actually are separate sovereigns. You know what I mean? Like they have their own governments. 
um, and you're a citizen of Luxembourg, for example, it's not the same as what separate sovereign means in the United States. The separate sovereigns only in certain circumstances, uh, but the United States has obligations to Native American groups that it has um, made and promised to uphold. And so it could have a very significant impact on um, a tribe's ability to make decisions for themselves about, for example, who a child is uh, placed with if they need to be removed from their family of origin. What about Biden's student loan forgiveness plan? Isn't that supposed to go before the Supreme Court? Mm, yeah, they did agree to hear that. That's going to be a little while. They have not set a, a time uh, time you know frame for that yet, uh, but they have agreed to hear you know arguments on that. I think it's a tough legal argument to make. Um, I don't necessarily think that the Supreme Court is going to be super in favor of it. I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. Um, but I, 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 to me, I'm not tremendously optimistic about it. So what's interesting in, in the student loan forgiveness, it didn't go through Congress. It went through, uh, how did the Biden White House rationalize this? And that's kind of at the crux here of the case, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, what they did was they activated a previously passed law um, and the HEROES Act. And what they did was, you know, like the HEROES Act actually gives the president permission to um, do things like uh, stop student loan payments and actually to uh, dismiss portions of debt in the event of an emergency, right? So what the Biden administration did was they declared this sort of like student loan emergency, so to speak. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but they declared a state of emergency, and that was the basis for how they were uh, able to legally rationalize um, forgiving forgiving a portion, ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars, of people's student loans. And so, like many things, and many of the cases that come before the court, uh, oftentimes it has to do with executive power. In in many cases, Congress could do a lot here. Congress can legislate and change the law, but when they don't, you end up having these these um, basically fights about exec about the power the president has when Congress doesn't act. That's right. I mean, Congress, absolutely. If the Congress cared about this issue um, as a whole, and there are some people in Congress who do care, that's absolutely true. Um, but if Congress as a lawmaking body thought like, dang, you know what? These ideas of like how we thought to do interest, like that is not working out. Like we should fix it. Um, they could. And they choose not to. This is the bottom line. Because people are always like, well, why doesn't Congress do it? They choose not to. Period. They choose not to. For whatever reason, they choose not to. So at least some people. Um, it's not politically advantageous for them. Uh, if you are in the minority party right now, it's not politically advantageous for you to create new programs that will then be attributed as a win to the opposite party that's in power. Right. That happened no matter who is president. If you have a Democratic president and Republicans are in the minority, they um, they don't want to create a win for the for the president. And the same is true on the other side. If you have a Republican in power, Democrats in the Congress don't want to create a win for Trump. Republicans in power don't want to create a win for Biden. So when I say they don't want to, I mean that some people in Congress don't want to because it looks too good for the other side. Yes, unfortunately, it's not about problem solving always. It's about no. winning. And no, it's about winning, holding on to power. Uh, student loans, will that be heard? Will we know what happens with that by June or could that be pushed to the next? Yes. No, they, they're going to hear about it soon. Yeah. We have so much to discuss every time we talk, Sharon. I want to thank <laughs> you for providing insight 
on Supreme Court cases this week. Thank you, as always. Always. See you later. I'm so grateful to Sharon uh, for uh, speaking to us twice this week, answering viewer questions on all things Supreme Court. A reminder that you can follow her over on Instagram at her at Sharon Says So account. Uh, you can go check out her website as well and her podcast, which is called Here's Where It Gets Interesting. Uh, she does incredible deep dives into history and government. And before you go, don't forget to follow or subscribe to this show if you don't already, the Mo News Podcast, and tell your friends about the show. Really appreciate everyone continuing to spread the word. Uh, and also leave the show a review if you can. Every review matters and helps us continue to grow the show. If you don't already, you can follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I will see everyone back here for our next daily edition.